Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. This week, John, Will, and I discuss Russian disinformation in Syria. Then, John interviews Elliot Higgins, founder of Bellingcat. Bellingcat is a non-governmental organization that uses publicly available data and citizen journalists to investigate narratives of conflict, crime, and human rights abuses. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Today we're going to dive into the topic of Russian disinformation in the Middle East, kind of how does Russia um, engage in the Middle East, how do they spread disinformation, and, and where is it starting? And to me, the most obvious place to start is Syria. I mean, I think we've seen a lot of disinformation when it comes to the white helmets and chemical attacks in Syria. Well, what's the purpose of that disinformation? I think there are probably various aims. I think it's partly about Russia wanting to depict itself as a great power, but it's mainly about delegitimizing the West. So a lot of um, the kinds of information that it's sending out are about distracting the audience, uh, dismissing evidence, and also distorting the truth. And that's true because, you know, what they're trying to do is not persuade you that they're right. They're trying to persuade you that nobody is right. And if nobody's right, then nobody can really criticize them. So it's a way they sort of immunize themselves from criticism, not by answering legitimate claims, but by saying nobody's claims are legitimate. And we kind of see this in the way that they try to discredit Western media stories, right? It's not so much like you said about just providing videos to change the story, but they're saying you also can't trust these sources. So they're making it impossible for the people, for Syrians to trust sources writ large when it comes to information about their own country. Which, in fact, is the way Syria has worked for a long time. The, the Syrian press was heavily censored. I remember being in Damascus in, in 1991 and reading Al-Khayat, and you pick it up, and the paper actually has articles clipped out of it that the Syrian censors didn't want you to see. So the Syrian press has been constrained for years. Satellite television made it a little bit better. But the idea that the that you can't really trust the news is an idea that Syrians have had for generations. I kind of broached this topic by saying we're going to talk about Russian disinformation, but really it's not just Russia who is playing this game. It's obviously the Assad government and they're cooperating together. Are we seeing other organizations kind of emulate this disinformation, kind of sowing more confusion, or is it just these two entities in Syria? This is an old game in the Middle East when Al Jazeera was started, everybody said, oh, Al Jazeera is a breath of fresh air. But in fact, Al Jazeera used to have all these crackpot people who are on the payroll of somebody. And the thing that always made me quiver on Al Jazeera was when I saw somebody described as Katib Abahith, right, writer and analyst. And my thought is, so who's paying the person? And often the person paying the person is a government or an intelligence service. And the person's job is not to analyze, it's to be a mouthpiece for somebody with a point of view. But they're not just hiring these people to be mouthpieces or to write these pieces. They're creating a network that is reinforcing it. So, you know, writer A will write an article, B will cite that source, and then A will cite B. So they're creating an interconnected web of short crackpots, all citing each other so it feels like a legitimate body of work. 
I think there are various ways in which they're doing it. And I think Russia really works through the whole ecosystem of the information environment. So part of it is about funding uh, media outlets, uh, which are which are sponsored by Russia. Uh, I mean, this is especially the case in Spanish and in Arabic. In Arabic, we're talking about RT Arabic and Sputnik Arabic as well, in particular. But it's not just that. That's one element of it. I think it's also about the broader environment to enhance and amplify this disinformation. So they work through various journalists who present themselves as independent journalists, sometimes as investigative journalists. Um, news websites like RT Arabic will repeatedly cite claims which are unverified and will use that to sort of spread it wider. If we're looking at how well Russia is doing at this, what is the scope and scale? Like, How effective is this actually at convincing the average citizen that no news is trustworthy or that their story is right. So I think there are a few examples that show just how impactful it is. So we said we were going to focus on, on Syria, and there was one attack in particular that I think is noteworthy. So in 2017, in, in, in April, there was the attack on Khan Sheikhoun in, in northern Syria, in Idlib province. Um, right. It's believed to have killed about 90 people. And what I think is interesting in terms of the impact of this is that afterwards, the hashtag Syria hoax was trending on Twitter, and it was trending in various parts of the world, including the United States. States. So this is something that in the immediate aftermath of this attack, which the UN joint investigative mechanism uh, confirmed, it was it was a sarin gas attack and conducted by the Syria regime, even inside the United States, this was trending. So I think that's one way of showing how far the reach is. Well, if I were on Twitter, would I know what trending in the United States means? Um, you would. <laughs> I would. Okay. But of course, everyone should follow at CSIS Mideast. Yes, they should. <laughs> But I think if we're talking about the scale, RT Arabic has published over half a million tweets, while BBC Arabic has only published around 120,000. If you're looking at scale, that's incredible. It's huge. It's huge. And I think that Russia really does focus on social media. And a lot of this content is driven through social media. And I think part of this is about its emphasis on the younger audience in the Middle East. And I think that there's something to be said for the fact that, that young people in the Middle East are at least many people I've met in the Middle East um, are are quite susceptible to conspiracy theories and perhaps with good reason. I mean, certainly international uh, actors have, have conspired against some of their countries in the past, but they will very happily retweet this and view this as evidence of Western complicity. And let's be clear, a lot of the people who work for Russian broadcast networks, the people tweeting on behalf of Russian outlets, are Arabs themselves working for Russians. So in many ways, it's about supporting elements within these societies rather than Russians directly reaching out. Well, and when the United States or Western audiences do this as well, they tend to use, you know, emigres from the Middle East or people whose parents might have immigrated to America. So maybe they're still fluent in Arabic, but they lose the cultural context. So Russia, by working with locals on the ground, just has that insight. They have that connection. And I think it's important to recognize as well that this isn't all about disinformation. I mean, a lot of what these media outlets do is they focus on human interest stories. They work out what people are interested in, carry a lot of pieces which are about social issues and things which are unrelated to these broader political aims. But I think that that helps build their credibility and their interest, um, which then gives them a, a broader platform to spread the disinformation. So I think, you know, we're talking a lot about disinformation in Syria, from Russia, from the Assad government. Syria isn't the only place that this is happening, 
But what is Russia hoping to achieve by doing this? What are they looking for? So I think in in Syria, it's partly about discrediting the Syrian opposition. It's partly about discrediting its Russia's Western critics. And it's also about discrediting independent witnesses to some of the atrocities that Russia has committed in in Syria. So a big part of that are the the White Helmets. So the White Helmets are a group of volunteers who who conduct rescue operations in in rebel-held areas of Syria. Well, and they also document war crimes. Exactly. And so that's I think that's a really critical part of why they've been the target of so much Russian disinformation, because these are often the people who are filming the aftermath of the attacks, um, who are uh, taking sort of medical samples, which then can help prove that chemical weapons were used. And let's be clear, the Russian military strategy in Syria doesn't involve a lot of intelligence and smart bombs. Russian military strategy in Syria is dropping bombs on whatever seems convenient and terrorizing populations. Absolutely. And and I think in, in, in relation to the chemical weapons attacks in particular, there are various tactics that Russia has deployed to try and discredit them. So sometimes they blame the attacks on the rebels um, or on even on the white helmets themselves. But also uh, sometimes they just deny, flat out deny that the attacks ever took place. It's funny, in, in the late 1980s, there used to be a, a bookstore in Washington called the National Intelligence Book Center, which was sort of in a very strange apartment. And they had this little button you could get that said, admit nothing, deny everything, make counter allegations. That is the way an intelligence service works. What I think is interesting with Russia is that's the way the government as a whole works. That's the way they see their whole public diplomacy strategy. So, John, if Russia is kind of, they're brilliant at this, right? Like they can really marshal a lot of power for a low cost to sow this type of disinformation. Do you see this spreading to other countries? Look, it's spreading in the United States. One of the problems with social media, one of the problems of of the ubiquity of information and the ease of publishing is bad information drives out good information. You have a president of the United States who's talking all the time about fake news. And the fake news comes from authoritative news outlets that have standards. You can argue they're not high enough. You could argue that sometimes they're biased, but they actually have standards And the president is arguing that on the one hand, the standards are wrong. And on the other hand, organizations that don't have any standards are more believable than the ones that do. I don't think this is limited to Russia. I don't think it's limited to the United States. I think in the 21st century, we're seeing the decline of professional media and the rise of what you might call citizen media, but is really renegade media where nothing has to be verified and every opinion is as good as any other opinion. I believe you're actually going to talk to someone about trying to fix that. We are. In fact, talking on the citizen line, I spoke to Elliot Higgins, who founded an organization called Bellingcat that tries to use citizen journalists to crowdsource verifying actual information. So if you have people on the ground, or you have people who can comb databases, or you look at people who can look at all the things that are out there in the public realm, can you fact check people who are just trying to lie? And Elliot says, as you'll hear very shortly, sure you can. Looking forward to that. Next, John interviews Elliot Higgins, founder of Bellingcat. Elliot, welcome to Babel. Thank you. A lot of what you've done in Bellingcat seems directed toward governments that try to manipulate the news in, in ways that you actually find are pretty transparent. How do you think governments like Russia think about the news? 
Um, well, I think in the case of Russia, how they think about news, I mean, that's a, a good question, but it, it seems to me, you know, doing the work we've done on MH17 in Syria, that it's a way to spread as many different versions of events as possible to keep people kind of, you know, disengaged with the facts and what is actually going on. Um, you look at MH17, the Russian media has produced so many different versions of events, you know, going to quite elaborate lengths to do so, um, you know, even staging kind of um, actual Su-25 jets shooting stuff on the ground to prove it was an Su-25, then they move on to another version of events. So it creates this kind of confusion about what's actually happening. So it's not really getting a story out, it's knocking down whatever story other people have? Or creating so many versions of events and people say, well, who knows what's true? Is that new and is, is that specific to Russia in your mind? It's certainly something that's not new with Russia. I mean, it's been going on for you know decades with Russia. That's how they kind of counter in, you know information. It's not something that I've personally observed elsewhere, but that's not really. Um, you know, I've mostly focused on Russia, so that's kind of why I see it. When I was in Syria in the early '90s, I was sort of shocked at the the nature of the Syrian press, and I was talking to a Jordanian friend who explained the point isn't to convince you that what they're saying is true. The point is to convince you that nothing is true. And what's been interesting for me is when we've been looking into the way kind of Russia and Syria has re reacted to accusations against them regarding, say, airstrikes and the cases where um, we've looked into airstrikes that the US has done and then they've kind of said, you know, this thing hasn't happened and then we showed it has happened, like when they bombed Algin a mosque. The way the US reacts is very, very different to the way Russians and Syria reacts. They give uh, their version of events. They're actually saying, you know, this is you know what happened, why it happened. Um, they don't try and present lots of different versions of events or try and confuse you. But I think that's kind of the difference you see between Russia and Syria and the US and other Western nations. In Russia and Syria, they're trying just to come bombard you with alternative narratives until you just give up. Do you find jihadi groups are trying to manipulate the news in a similar way? Or is this really a, a, a form of of state action in your mind? Um, it's not really something I've observed on the same kind of scale. I mean, they do, they put out information and disinformation. I, I just don't think they have the level of media where they can actually do that effectively. Whilst in Russia, you have plenty of Russian news sites and channels and blogs and kind of online forums where all sorts of theories and ideas are kind of created. And it, it was very significant with MH17 where you saw directly after that, Russia gave this press conference where they presented their evidence of what happened. And there, they didn't say this evidence there Therefore, shows this is the truth. They said, we've got this evidence. It shows these things. It's very confusing. What could it possibly mean? And then the media and the bloggers and the online community pick that up. And then that kind of gets recycled. The ideas that come out of that are picked up by the Russian government and then presented it almost as if their own, it's their own work. So there's this kind of cycle where they plant the seeds, see what grows in the media, and then kind of pick, you know, cherry pick stuff from there and then kind of recycle that. And it just keeps going and going. So what's the Bellingcat method to take this apart? Well, one thing that always interests me is when there's two different versions of events and lots of open source information about those events, because then you can kind of compare um, what the open source evidence is saying and see who that's most consistent with. And generally, when you've got two different stories, they're very, very different. And we saw this with MH17. We've seen this with all kinds of incidents in Syria regarding the bombing of locations. Um, it also means that when they use false imagery, for example, with uh, Syria, we saw them using lots of misdated satellite imagery or satellite imagery of different locations 
questions from the ones they were talking about, that's actually quite easy to prove because you just use the open source information to find the actual location, look at the satellite imagery and see if it compares to, you know, what Russia has been saying. And it does get to the point where it's like now when anyone comes to me and says, how do I learn, you know, how to do open source investigation? I say fact check a Russian MOD press conference because you're going to find a lot of false information in there you can actually check. How do you guard against the possibility that the Russians aren't putting out bad information into the open source space? So in fact, in the same way that you can't tell if the news is true, you can't tell if the open source information is true. Well, with open source evidence and when we're investigating that evidence, we're looking for the kind of network of information that exists around that. So we're not just looking at one image or, you know, one claim. We're looking at a whole range of information and seeing where there's consistencies and inconsistencies. And in a way, this is what happened with the Russian MOD in their July 21st, 2014 press conference on MH17. They presented a lot of false information. Um, and by using open sources and comparing it to other information, we could prove that this information was false. But it, it seems to me that, that before you started doing things five or six years ago, they could have one method. And I just wonder how you can guard against the possibility that a more sophisticated operation could even throw your team of investigators off the trail because they just flood bad information, which drives out good information. For me, it's like the level they take this to. If they put out some false satellite imagery or make a false claim, that's a pretty easy thing to prove. That's like the meat and potatoes of Russian you know, propaganda and disinformation. If they start getting to the point where they're creating you know, social media activity and open source information to create a complex kind of network of information that's false, that's still detectable. Because you are going to have other information on the other side of it where you will have the actual true open source information. And then that stuff you can confirm not just by using open sources, but going on the ground, talking to witnesses. And if um, you know Russia went and did this kind of very complex scheme of creating this you know, network of false information, that itself would become the story as much as the actual event itself. And that's something we could write on for, you know, <laughs> weeks of work on the, you know, explaining how they've done this, these fake networks and produced all this fake information. One side is, is the Russians would flood the field with false information and make the signal to noise impossible to hear. The other possibility is that Western intelligence agencies would try to shape this or, or try to make things public through networks like Bellingcat to try to play a game against the Russians. How do you avoid being an instrument of somebody else's foreign policy? It's something we're kind of hyper aware of because there's so many accusations that's, that that's what's happening already with Bellingcat. We've been constantly told by kind of pro-Russian people that all our scripple evidence is given to us by the UK security services and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting to us if the you know the Western security services try to do that, and it would be just equally detectable either way by comparing it to you know other open source information. And you know even when the US has published stuff, you know evidence related to MH17, for example, we've fact checked that in the same way uh, we would if it was Russian evidence. It's treating both of them equally, really. It's just it, we find out Russia tends to lie constantly about stuff, so there's just more stuff there to write about. Do you see governments like Iran, governments like Saudi Arabia trying to do the same sorts of things the Russians are doing, governments like China? 
I think there's kind of two ways to look at this disinformation. One is the disinformation is just information. So that has almost like a more short-term impact where, uh, you know, a, a false video or image or claim goes out and it, you know, gets reported on. And by the time it's been disproven, you know, 100,000 people have read it. An example like that is when Russia used a screenshot from a computer game and claimed it was irrefutable evidence that the US was helping ISIS. What happened there is that screenshot, that same video had been used by someone else to make another claim a couple of weeks earlier. Lots of people had seen it. So in a way, they've been inoculated against that particular piece of disinformation. So there's an immediate reaction to that. But that is kind of something that's kind of harder to get people to react to because it's really about that kind of immediate, almost visceral in the moment reaction to that piece of information. But if we're approaching it as evidence and we're looking at it as in the context of a lot of information. So by looking at it in the context as evidence, we can actually find you know more to either verify or kind of dismiss it as false information. And then in a way it becomes even more interesting because you're wondering how did that piece of false information appear in the first place? It's one thing for like activists in Syria to you know say something that's untrue but when it's a nation state, you know, making a false claim, especially when they're producing evidence to support that false claim, that becomes an actual interesting investigation and story in itself. A lot of your work has focused on Russia. Do you think that what is going to happen in the future will be that the Bellingcat model will be expanded globally and that governments will be held to account when they try to play this? Or will there just be so much noise in the system that this is going to be a constant battle Governments will continue to innovate. Citizens will continue to try to combat. And we're just going to have another front uh, in in the war for public opinion. My perspective is it's really about kind of almost arming the, you know, the journalists, investigators, population who kind of counter this information with the tools to do that. A lot of our focus at the moment is training uh, as many people as possible to do investigations. We're training journalists, activists, uh, students at university. We're working on a kind of a local level and an international level as well, because I've, I think almost this is about social media literacy as much as it is about, you know, being an investigator. It's about, you know, seeing something online and actually not only being able to say this is suspicious, but if it's suspicious, how do it can I actually prove it's a fake? And if we can equip as many people as possible. And are you seeing small groups arising in the Middle East, in Asia? Is this is this becoming a global movement or is it largely a Western movement? I mean, it's still very much focused on kind of the English-speaking West and um, kind of Russia and Ukraine, because those are the kind of big areas where that's come up. Also, to a certain extent, in Syria and Yemen and Iraq. But Elsewhere in the world, it still does need um, kind of a lot of development. So for us, it's really about finding partners, you know, across the world we can work with and kind of training them how to do it. Do you need a, a news platform to get it out or, or do you find that, that a website is adequate to combat these sort of state efforts at, at disinformation? I think it's really about having a network that you can kind of navigate with information that, you know, if you find a small group who's doing interesting stories, but they might not have the connections that Bellingham has with kind of larger media organizations, you might find that story interesting is connecting them together and helping them develop it into something that can be published and shared. But it sounds like the ultimate consumer needs to be an international news platform or, or the international news media rather than a national news media that might be interested in a, a narrower story. Is that right? 
you have to have a very kind of flexible approach, I think. Sometimes there are stories that are just going to have a very local interest. I mean, even within our MH17 and Scripple investigations, some of the stories have had a very big kind of international impact. Mm-hmm. Others that have had a more kind of local impact because it is more of a local issue that it's addressing. But even within that, you can kind of nav- navigate those different levels and you have to expect to do that. You can't expect every single story is going to be a kind of big international story. But it's still worth reporting on because it adds more to the completeness of the investigation investigation and the story that you're developing. Elliot Higgins, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. That's great. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 